What's up, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Terror Table, a horror movie podcast that is presented by the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, my name is Mitch, and alongside me today I have... You got Kyle. And you got DJ Boozy. Alright, the whole whole gang okay. is here. Uh, we have an incredibly exciting episode for you guys today. Uh, this has been a long time coming. It's been in the works for a very long time. We have uh, a bucket list guest for this episode, which you probably know since you clicked on the episode and you can see what we're going to be talking about or who we're going to be talking to. But this episode, we had the chance, the opportunity to speak with Monroe Chambers, who we Woo! all know and love from Degrassi. Uh, Boozy, what was, or Kyle, what was the first one that you mentioned? The, uh, the last... latest buzz. The latest, the latest buzz. buzz. Yeah, but he's also been in recent genre films like Knuckleball, which was directed by Michael Peterson, who is a previous guest of the show. He's in Harpoon and uh, Helmington, which is a movie that I know uh, Boozy talks very highly of. Uh, it was just, it's an amazing interview. It was it was short. We just, we had a half an hour with them, but uh, we definitely made every second count and it was awesome. And we can't wait for you guys to hear it. So we talk all about Turbo Kid, Degrassi, and uh, his time as a child actor. So we are so grateful that we had the opportunity to do that. And we hope you guys enjoy the episode. Boozy, can you uh, hit us with, uh, can you let our listeners know about our sponsors this week? Here's a word from our sponsor, the Saskatchewan Department of Highways. Take your time. Be patient and safe out there. Saskatchewan's winter climate can be extreme, frigid, cold, severe changes in temperature, strong winds, and heavy snowfall. This weather can wreak havoc on roads and keep snowplow crews busy. Snowplows pull every, over every 10 to 15 kilometers for you to pass safely. Treat snowplows the same as you would an emergency vehicle. If a snowplow is pulled over and has lights flashing, slow to 60 and pass with caution. It's not a race. Give some space. Pass snowplows safely. Check the Saskatchewan Highway hotline before traveling and visit saskatchewan.ca slash snowzone for more information. Shout out highways. Yeah, shout out snowplows. All right, well, uh, let's get into it, you guys. Do you want to, let's talk about a couple things that we've seen over the last couple of weeks, and uh, then we can get on with the main portion of the conversation with Monroe Chambers. Who wants to go first? Kyle? Well, since you kindly uh, introduced me as the first person, I suppose I'll go, Mitch. Thank you. Thank you, kind sir. I got one film to talk about this week because, you know, um, we had a very interesting discussion uh, last time we were all together around the table talking about the Shapiro disaster, which I still haven't seen, but I'm, I'm not going to. I'm just going to call it a disaster. I think that's okay. I want to cut in here and just say that I have talked to multiple people who have listened to that episode who all really enjoyed the movie. Uh, so shout out them. That's totally cool. Okay. Well, yeah. Hey, I, I, I thought, I, I thought I made it clear that it's actually like, it's not a bad movie. It's well made. I just, I do not fuck with that. <laughs> fair enough. But I think sorry. that is uh, where, where are you fair. going from this? Should Ben Shapiro movie? What? This one makes sense. Trust me. I'm going to talk about, uh, 2009's polytechnic. Oh, um, nice. Which I need to be upfront about. I, for some reason was positive that I had seen polytechnic, but 10 minutes into Polytechnic, I realized that I have not seen this movie before. I don't know in what universe I thought, I don't know, I, I couldn't retrace my steps into understanding why I thought I had seen this movie. Maybe I just like tricked myself into thinking I had seen it. I don't really know. But being, I'm being open and honest. This is essentially my first time watching it. So here I am watching Denis Villeneuve's 2009 Polytechnic. Which I wanted to talk about on the show, and actually the reason I wanted to watch it is because our discussion about, what was it called, Run, Hide, Fight? Run, Run Hide, Fight. Run, Hide, Fight, yeah. Because of that. Uh, so for those who don't know, this is a, a film directed by Canadian uh, Denis Villeneuve, who, who's done, a, I don't know, a half a dozen amazing films, and this one included. Uh, and it's talking about the Polytechnic uh, Massacre in Montreal in 1989. So this film came out as kind of like a 20-year anniversary, um, uh, you know, way to pay homage and way to pay respect to this event that happened in real life. And the victims. Um, and the victims included, absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's the film presents the situation with a lot of realism. It doesn't really hold anything back. And it's interesting to look now, especially when we've had so many great discussions about misogyny and, um, you know, how we can go about looking at uh, creating equal spaces and creating uh, equality for, you know, women and BIPOC people and, and the ways that we can look into the past and look at how we've had these horrific events take place 
and how we have grown from those p- events, but also how those events still take place today and how we need to really, um, you know, from make ourselves familiar with these past events so that we can move forward. And I think a film like this does a really, really good job of that because I mean, I would, I would probably argue there's a lot of folks who watched this movie when it first came out or are watching it, I guess like myself to an extent for the first time, 2021, who probably didn't know a lot about what happened at this, at this event. Um, in Montreal, where this was essentially, you know, a violent massacre based on what we would kind of call incel culture at the, yeah. you know, in, in 2021, uh, that name wasn't used then, obviously, more or less, it was a, an attack on people who identified and spoke, uh, you know, feminist theory. So it's the kind of film where it's very fact-based. There's not like any like narrative liberties really, as far as I understand it. And it does that with a purpose, you know, and I think that's the most respectful way you could go by making a film like this. And I think the film is extremely respectful while also being incredibly horrific in many yeah. different ways. Uh, mostly just on the subject matter alone. Um, but also in the way that, you know, Denis has, like I said, he's not really holding back on this. Like there is, graphic scenes um and it's presented in an interesting way because it's presented in black and white with intent so that it's not necessarily all about the blood and gore however that is still there so kyle is that problematic for you on a scale of (laughs) one to problematic no this is the opposite of problematic this is is this is how it's done this is yeah this to me is that's exactly right this is how it's done i don't i don't know i think i think something like this you know it needs to be seen. I think this is honestly a film that should be shown in schools. I'm not even kidding. Like, I think this is something that like kids need to understand. Like if you are, (laughs) if you're spending too much time on the wrong sides of, you know, fringe groups or the internet, you like, there's, there's really like toxic ideas that can start to thrive within yourself. And I think a film like this can really show how, um, how that is a real thing that can happen and has happened and we need to work forward to sort of stop those ideas moving forward. And anyway, yeah, Polytechnic, like, I think it's just a night and day contrast to basically what you said about the film last week, Mitch. I, again, I can't totally speak on it personally because I haven't seen it. And you're saying that some people really do enjoy it. However, um, I think in generally speaking that between the two approaches taken here, of course, one is based on a true story. So they're inherently different. I, I think this is a much more sincere and a very, you know, true to form approach if you're interested in seeing something that tackles a subject like this not that it's romanticized in any way but i absolutely couldn't you know promote this film more tell you to watch it more i mean denis is a fucking national treasure for a reason and this is one of his first features and absolutely absolutely worth checking out if you haven't seen polytechnic which apparently i hadn't (laughs) which i think is somewhat hilarious and also kind of offensive to myself yeah watch this one i don't know i i think have you guys seen this one I have it. On, I haven't. I, I own it on Blu-ray, and yeah, so I watched it when I think Prisoners had just come out, and I was just right, obsessing right. over Denis. So I wanted to get all of his well, movies. So I got I got Polytechnic and Insandies, and uh, yeah. But did you know he shot Polytechnic twice? Yeah, I was just gonna get into that. He shot it twice, and I watched the French version. Good, because um, how you I, should I, watch it. I did a little because okay, like like I said, like five, 10 minutes into this movie, I had a weird revelation. I was like, wait, what the fuck? I have not seen this movie. What is going on? So then I literally did some homework to make sure like what version (laughs) I should watch. And the fucking weirdest thing is I, I bought it on Blu-ray and I was watching it because I was like, Oh shit, I haven't seen Polytechnic in 10 years. I'm going to watch it. Anyways, I'm living in a (laughs) weird Bernstein bears universe right now. And it's kind of weird, but, um, yeah, no, this is a, this is a good one. It's also 77 minutes. Which crispy. Not, oh, crispy. Which oh, th- not th- get me any more stoked. Thank you for reminding me. This is a perfect time. Uh, we uh, we got an email. <laughs> is it an email? No, we got an email, and I want to I want to read it here. Um, so this is from our friend John Allison. Uh, the title yeah, of it. The title is Long Horror and Last Exorcism. Hey guys, just wanted to chip in with a couple of comments. The first, uh, the first, a short story about the last exorcism. This does com- contain a, a bit of a spoiler, so I'll warn everyone to jump a tiny bit if they don't want to hear it. I was lucky enough. I was lucky enough to catch catch it at Toronto After Dark Film Festival, and Eli Roth was in attendance. After the movie, Eli Roth was answering questions from the audience, and one person asked the question, "What happened at the end?" Roth stared for a second, shook his head, and said. They fucking killed him. <laughs> and uh, 
I still can't decide if I hate Q and A's or love them. Also, I wanted to provide a comment on long movies. I was, I for one miss the, miss the days when movies were often two hours long and I dig the big epic movies that run three or more hours. Short movies are great, are a great bang for your buck, but I love when a movie has the time to breathe and we as the audience get to live in that world. Uh, just for fun, here are some great longer horror movies. It Chapter 2, 169 minutes. That's a little bit of a weird place to lead off with, John, as a movie that's cold open, widely not enjoyed, and also like uh, often criticized for its length. Fair enough. Continue. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't don't hate that movie. But, anyways, this one's a better example. The Wailing is 155 minutes. Right. That's a long Yeah, it, it, it has something to say. It's not a wrong turn movie that's two fucking hours long. <laughs> like can the I... wailing, the wailing is entirely different. Let me get through this, Kyle, and then sure. you can you can go. <laughs> Doctor Sleep, an hour and fifty two minutes. The House of the Jack Belt, an hour and er, one hundred fifty two minutes. Suspiria, two thousand eighteen, one hundred fifty two minutes. Midsummer, one hundred forty eight. The Shining, one hundred forty six. Cure for Wellness, one hundred forty six. Also not a good movie. I saw the Devil, one hundred forty four minutes. Uh, Rosemary's Baby, one hundred thirty seven minutes. Thirst, one hundred thirty five movies. Would have been better at ninety. <laughs> it Chapter One, one hundred thirty five minutes. Whatever happened to Baby Jane, one hundred thirty four minutes. Bone oh, Tom he's Hawk. doing it by runtime. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Bone Tomahawk, one hundred thirty two minutes. P.S. Most Del Toro movies are just under two hours. Cheers, John. Yeah, and we get it. John. I think movies. we get it, John. So, <laughs> I need to make something clear here, and I want to maybe put a pin in this to some extent. I, I have always said this, and I even said this on my long lost podcast, a second viewing. My rule of thumb is: I want a movie around ninety minutes, or I want a movie that's around three hours. Anything in between fucks me up, and I get kind of pissed off. I'm not gonna mm-hmm. lie. That's that's how I like to think. Is I actually agree with you, John, with hundred percent. Like to me. I want to like I want to get engrossed. If I'm there for like two and a, two forty five three hours, I know it's a long one. I'm sitting with it. Let me be a part of that universe. I love it. I'm there for it. On the opposite side, keep it around eighty. Keep it around ninety. Give me a nice concise story. I'm in and out. I got something good out of it. When I'm getting like a two hour movie and an hour fifty movie, like not saying that that means it's a bad movie, but I got to be honest, like that's when I start to feel the runtime or that's when I start to like right. notice things that maybe I'm not really supposed to notice. You, you well, want to trim where, the fat. <laughs> that's where the fat gets trimmed. And I just, I'm not going to give you a list of that right now because for me, it just happens far too no, often. Give us the list. We need list runtime no, in it's, order. I just, I just so, let, I would no, like to ahead. point, I would like to point something out about the terror table. We take this, this happens a lot and it's totally fair because we often forget that there's more than just three of us here. Like when you make a podcast, everyone's listening. So there's a lot of jokes that we think are funny and uh, a lot of people don't see that they're actually for the most part jokes. And I think us shitting on long run times is a little bit of a joke. There's some truth in there, but it's the same thing with the DVD thing. When we were roasting Kyle for having DVDs for fucking years, it's like, we don't give a shit if we, we all own DVDs. <laughs> like, it's just a joke, but uh, it's, it's one of those things I just wanted to clear up because yeah, I, it's totally our fault. Like that people well, don't understand but, our, but Mitch, like, Mitch has a great point though, is like he, he listed, you know, when John listed his movies, it's like, yeah, fucking wrong turn nine isn't on that list. And that movie was so long. And that's kind of what we're talking about is like well, nonsensical storytelling that takes like two hours and it just feels like a waste, like at least half an hour of that is a waste of your time. I think, I think generally my, I'll, my final thoughts on this is to be honest, when a movie is around like an hour 50 to like two fifteen, then I'm nervous. I want it to be, I want it to be shorter or I want it to be fucking long. That's just how right. I am. So Kyle, I, you saw I'm, the, I'm the by VHS that. set of Titanic. Were you like yep. really worried? You were Not daunted. I was ready, baby. Give me four hours. I'm. I'll take it in. I'll watch Santiago if I have to. I want mm. a fucking ass movie. I love long movies. I just don't like movies that don't decide. Can't decide if they want to be short or long. Then it's like right. okay. Chill. How are, are you, so are you pretty excited? Because I, I for one am excited about Ari Aster's next movie that's supposed to be like four and a half hours long. Couldn't be more excited, Mitch. That's what I'm talking about. That's what we want. Come on, people. We do not want a fucking hour and 50 long movie. That's so boring. Just like, come on, guys. I I, I mean, Mitch, you have your own opinion, but honestly, I feel very passionately about this and I actually do hate movies that are that long. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, it's, it's always, it's a turnoff because you got to carve out a perfect time for something like that. But exactly. I am more than... 
I'm more than happy and so excited to carve out four and a half hours for Ari Aster. Like he's earned it for me. Uh, so I'm couldn't agree I'm, more. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. Um, all right, can we move on, boys? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna knock uh, knock a couple off. I'm just gonna echo. This is gonna be a pretty horror light episode because leading <laughs> up. Poly- Polytechnique is not really a horror movie, but it is. I entirely agree. It's horrific, and I understand I why. I thought it was relevant to what we definitely, were talking about. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. And same with your pick on uh, framing Britney Spears last week. That was also a perfect like conversation for this, this, this show. I'm totally okay with talking about that stuff. And I watched Framing Britney Spears, and uh, it was oh. it was very good. I'm just going to say that. It was, it was very good. It was very heartbreaking. I think it's very important that people see it so you can understand how to treat celebrities who are faced with, like, when there's a camera on them at all hours of the day and at all times, especially since they were young. And uh, I think that's the most important lesson you can learn from framing Britney Spears. And it's free online. So I think if you're at all interested, I would, I would suggest watching it. Uh, So yeah, that's framing Britney Spears. I only have one other one to talk about, and it's another documentary series that is nothing to do with horror movies, but Oh my god, I got obsessive with it, and I watched it twice. (laughs) You guys, I already told you guys about how much I enjoyed this, but I didn't tell you that I watched it all again last night. I watched all three episodes again, and I don't know why. I think I'm in one of those places where nothing's really working for me right now, and I was like, I kind of just want to like live in that world again, that bullshit world of supervillain, or the making of Takashi 6ix9ine. So, yeah, this is a three-part documentary series on Crave uh, that chronicles the rise and fall and rise of uh, Takashi 6ix9ine, the man who has rainbow-colored hair, has 69 tattooed on his forehead. He's got a jigsaw puzzle on his face. Yeah, yeah, he's known for being one of the, the SoundCloud rappers of this generation where... He made a whole bunch of money off of short songs on the internet, and uh, he linked up with a bunch of, he's just a little kid who, a small man, who linked, managed to link up with the actual Bloods in New York City, and he was putting them in their music, his music videos, They he was paying them, he had them all on payroll, and uh, he eventually snitched on all of them, and got eight out of eleven of the closest, his closest friends put in prison and uh the man is still alive the the joke is that he like it's unbelievable that he hasn't been killed yet because like how do you get away with snitching on such a mass level with such terrifying people like actual people who are they're hardened criminals that's their life that's the way that they and that's what's really good about the documentary is it actually you know it, you you feel bad for those guys because they're just a victim of their circumstance they're a victim of uh the life that they were born into and the poverty and like having to commit crimes in order to make money and you know when they finally start sort of straightening their life out by you know getting involved with music it becomes kind of like they they reference the death row thing i don't know if people listening are hip-hop fans i've always been a fan of rap culture and um i was very obsessive with the whole death row east coast west coast shit and uh, i grew up just being very engrossed in that uh but this is all very very similar but such an in such an internet way the right. the man is just a complete lunatic who managed to fuck so many people over and create such a life for himself with just a cell phone and a ton of dumb decisions like <laughs> having his face fucking covered in tattoos and 69 like that is just I, I'm going to be honest going into this I always knew that he was just a shithead and that I knew he snitched and whatever and it's like yeah this guy's going to die right away like so whatever who cares about him I didn't know about all the like nitty gritty stuff like all the little oh, things yeah. that went into There's it some... yeah he's it's, he's a, it's definitely a rabbit hole for sure he's a, he's a true monster and uh, super villain I thought, I thought it was a really solid documentary series I've seen it get beat up online um, but yeah. I think that that might be just be because a lot of the people watching it probably already knew everything about him. And right. uh, for someone like me, I only knew the Cliff Notes versions. Uh, so I found it really, really interesting. And like above all else, the thing that makes it so good is that that idiot, Takashi 69 he was he was filming everything. He had his camera out for everything. So there's footage, unbelievable footage that... He that is in the documentary because someone had a camera in a place where a camera shouldn't be. 
like you know a, tra- a trap house or you know a, a different fights or shootings and clubs like it's it's just it's the it's a really interesting look into what's like the dangers of being an attention whore and that's exactly what the man is is he's just a piece of shit who just wants wanted all the attention he just wanted to be famous he wants everyone to know who he is and now everyone does and he loves it he loves yeah. that people hate him and that's like the worst mm-hmm. part about it so there's a little bit of a conversation you could have with this documentary in particular because it's like really by making this documentary you're just giving him what he wants you're giving him more attention I and think but the thing is i think issue, a lot of, honestly yeah but i think a lot of people are missing the point of that's what the whole documentary is about it's like this is kind of like the nail in the coffin and the, i think they that's what i mean very well there's I think an issue they, with that right you have to you still have to you have to talk about things to work through them if you don't talk about yeah. things and they can they can thrive right so. exactly so it, i think if anything this does not promote him even slightly. This just shows right, yeah. like it's, it's addressing what we were just talking about with framing Britney Spears too, with it's giving too much attention to people who live off of that attention. And that's why, you know, as soon as I finished the series, I was like, God damn it. Someone's got to kill this guy so that the Safety <laughs> brothers can make a movie. Cause like, if you've seen good time or uncut gems, it's like they would thrive in that world of like a Takashi six, nine movie. Right. But also I don't want to give that guy any more attention. He doesn't need that. But yeah. I still, I would love to see the Safety brothers take on, like, maybe make, like, a conglomerate of, like, uh, Takashi, Lil Pump, like, all those idiots who are getting tattoos on their faces and <laughs> doing stupid shit. I don't know, the whole culture is just, it's crazy. Last thing I'm going to say about it, for me, the best thing about it is it's narrated by Giancarlo Esposito, who plays Gus Frain on Breaking Bad. And I think that those moments are riveting. I think it's really well and in, inventively shot and really cool. And uh, basically, like, it's it, there's like two or three times each episode where it'll just cut to like a white screen and he explains to you, it's like, this is how a supervillain is born. They need this, they need this, they need this. And it, he, the, all of the checklist, all of it's there for Takashi. It, it's, it's just, I thought it was really powerful documentary filmmaking. And I, for one, Really enjoyed it, and uh, recommend people checking it out, even if it's just for the lulls, because you will you will laugh a couple times, because it's like, my God, this guy's an idiot. That's everything <laughs> I got, boys. Yeah, that's an interesting one, Mitch. I don't know. I think you know, I, I I know that like right now it might not look like much, and like with that, but I think you give it a couple of years, and it'll definitely be a very cautionary tale. Um, I think we kind of talked about this off air, but like this is a guy who's like blackballed from the music industry. It's like, yes, as much as he's getting press, it's always negative. And eventually, yeah, and, and I think eventually people will just get tired. It'll run its course just like everything else. And, you know, that that's when the, the MC Hammer love and hip hop stuff is going to come out. You know, the, I got no more money left, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just and the, one of the interesting things I because I never heard a single second of any of his music going into this. So, like, when the music videos came in, I was like, oh, my God, this is just trash. Like, it's so bad. Uh, But he, like, there's interviews with him where he's talking about how he's like, I've never been into rap music ever. I grew up on Parkway Drive, All That Remains. And, like, he's talking about all these metal. Yeah, yeah. And that's why that makes sense when he's so aggressive on the the vocals. Like, he's always yelling. And you can kind of (laughs) see. What, you stupid? (laughs) It's, It's so bad. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I definitely recommend it. But uh, that's all I got this week, guys. So, Boozy, uh, do you want to close us out? I know you saw something pretty exciting. Yeah, I had something that, that will directly relate to the feature here. And it's the first time for me. And I, I know there's essential viewing for everybody else at this point. Uh, check out what, Turbo Kid 2014 or 15? 2014. Yes, uh, starring Monroe Chambers. We got uh, Michael Ironside of Starship Troopers fame. <laughs> and scanners and, and scanners awesome movie too um what yeah. a what a great film i i didn't realize what i was totally in store for and i think the thing i like the most is it's uh it's really endearing but also very funny it has good comedy mm-hmm. timing i think that's totally. that's something i wasn't totally expecting um and just the amount of homages and ability for the storytelling to come across as Kind of a greatest hits of like, hey, I remember that part and something else, but I don't feel it in like a negative way. Yeah. You, know, the, you have like, a, there, there's some references to a lot of Spielberg, you know, things within oh, this. And I'm trying, I don't really want to give it away. Alien. Yeah. Like there's, there's tons of awesome stuff in this that, 
you know, when you're watching, you're going to be like, holy shit, that's a reference to this or that, which is totally fun. And it does that without um, losing track of itself. I don't think this is uh, a movie where it's just kind of like, hey, I've seen this before and that's it. It's it tells its own story. And I think it does a great job of it. And it it kind of uh, flips a little bit of that hero's journey. You know, it, it kind of adds its own flavor to that. And I like that. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree, man. And so I saw it for the first time at the Saskatoon Fantastic Film Festival in 2014. And that was before, like, it's important that a lot of people need to remember that, like, Turbo Kid came out, it predates, like, the whole nostalgia, nostalgia porn era, like, where everything was synth in 80s. And Mm -hmm. uh, granted, this was the same year that we got The Guest and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which were both heavily synth-driven scores. But that wasn't a huge thing before this year. Like, and you know that, like, these movies all were released in the same year. So it's not like it, they saw a girl walks home alone at night or the guest and were like, I want to oh, do that. Right. All these people just naturally kind of felt like it was the right decision for that movie. And I think mm-hmm. that's the best thing about Turbo Kid is um, I, I always have compared it to Hobo with a Shotgun. But it's like Hobo with a Shotgun with a very earnest voice. And they, they're they not trying to make jokes about all the things that we grew up in love mm-hmm. and uh, they're they're not cashing in on the corniness of stuff. It's just really well written and really pulpy and just fun. Yeah. It, it looks it looks like bubblegum. The movie feels like bubblegum. Totally. Yeah. I, I think that's such a such a testament to how great it is. I watched it again last night and it's so good. And I like I like the the stuff they do. You know, you have kind of scenes where it'll take maybe something from a, a classic kung fu kind of styling, yeah. and then you'll have something where there'll be kind of a like a spaghetti western moment. I think it, it, it's really fun that way. It's you'll you'll definitely keep you guessing as you're watching it. it for the first time, at least, I had a good time. Yeah, yeah it's definitely not like doesn't really beat you with a bat in terms of like oh remember this remember you yeah. like this right like yeah. it's 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 less that which I think you know we've become a bit more critical of because it's happened so often now that we can kind of notice that, but despite that kind of criticism, that's not even like really in this film or even like referenced. Instead, it's just actually like having genuine appreciation from things from the past. And like you're mentioning, mm-hmm. Boozy, like not necessarily just the '80s, like from '70s, '60s, other things mm-hmm. like like film and popular culture as a whole, and kind of making this interesting amalgamation into appreciating like why we want to watch movies why people yeah. want to make movies right. things like that it's, it's very inspiring actually in a lot of ways and it's clearly a, a project too that like did a hell of a lot with the resources that it had too you know and mm-hmm. you know especially considering like the fact that it is kind of like tackling like these like kind of like larger than life set pieces and referencing like these big big blockbuster movies it still does that in a really sort of um I don't want to say humble, but it does it in a very like reserved way. That but yeah. that is still really effective. It does it in a very Canadian way, honestly. I guess I don't mean. I don't, so I'm hope. not trying to. I'm not trying to say it's like less than it. To me, it just feels like it feels attainable. It's it's really interesting yeah. in that sense. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree. And it, it's important to note that it's actually set in 1997. Right. <laughs> so yes, like is, that's yeah. one of my favorite things about Same it too. Is that here is Lost World. Yeah, there, there you, go. you go. And Same Anaconda. Movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, yeah, and it's oh, it's just such a great movie. But, yeah, that's uh, it's a great one. Yeah, it's funny though. That's actually a good place for us to end off and to usher in this conversation with Monero Chambers. But I love that this was such a big deal for for us. Like we're we're huge fans of Monroe. Um, but it's pretty funny how we're all f- like huge fans of his because of different reasons. Like I was going to say, we're all kind of all over the place with that. Well, that's what it's to me. It's really interesting that Boozy, like you've said multiple times on the show. We just gotta say, Monroe's a king. Like you, you would totally. say that you're like, I fucking love Monroe Chambers. He's great and everything. And you hadn't even seen Turbo Kid, which has kind of become the movie right. that he's most well known for. And I, I right. think that's awesome. Well, you know, and for me, it was uh, you know just with him on Degrassi, and then I didn't realize he was in Harpoon, which is the the next movie I saw from him until we were sitting in the theater. So it was like, holy shit. The, yeah, the I remember that someone from Degrassi, not taking anything from Degrassi, but it's a it's a mostly a very upbeat kind of show. So, you know, you don't oh, know definitely. how much depth some of those characters do have. And that yeah. once again, nothing against anybody on Degrassi. Well, yeah. Drake has depth. Let's not forget. That's true. I, I remember when we saw that screening at the festival and we like were walking outside just to talk about the movie and you were like, Eli's in it. I was like, what? 
You're like Eli from Degrassi. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was awesome. All right, boys. Well, this this was fun. And uh, we're really excited for you guys to hear this episode. So without further ado, enjoy this conversation with Monroe Chambers. Prepare to taste a turbo charge of justice in the face. All right, we are honored to welcome one of the Terror Table's favorite actors who has first appeared on screen at the young age of nine years old. Since then, he has become a household name when portraying the all-too-relatable Eli Goldsworthy on the hit Canadian television series Degrassi, which served as comfort, inspiration, and guidance for countless kids and teenagers, including the three of us during our youth. In 2014, he embodied the unforgettable character of the kid in the post-apocalyptic, synth, neon, and blood-soaked cult classic, Turbo Kid. We then saw him re-team with legendary actor, actor Michael Ironside for Knuckleball, a twisted fresh take on the familial Home Alone-esque horror subgenre, which was written, directed, and produced by friend and previous guest of the show, Michael Peterson. He continues to push boundaries and defy the expectations of child actors by appearing in a handful of other great horror and thriller titles like Helmington and Harpoon. It is our honor to welcome Monroe Chambers to the Terror Table. Uh, welcome, Yay. Monroe. <laughs> Bitch, I got a bottle of that, man. That was an intro. Holy. I'm, you should get that everywhere thing. you go. <laughs> no, man, not at all. That was, that was way too much. That was way too kind. So thank you so much for the intro, but thanks so much for having me on the table. Yeah, man, we're so excited that yeah, this is thank happening. thank you for having us. This has been like a, a bucket list episode that we wanted to do. We've always joked about because like, it seems weird, but we are really huge fans of yours, like stating back 20 years, like, or like whenever you started on Degrassi and it's been so cool to see you transfer into like more adult titles and everything. And it's, uh, you've been in some of our favorite movies of the last couple of years. I even, I know Boozy is a huge fan of Helmington. Uh, which came out a couple of years ago with uh, our buddy Adam McDonald, who's also he's been on the show. Uh, that's twice. right. Yeah. Oh, Adam. He. I was gonna say if there's anybody to get on that. If you actually, uh, so Alex Williams and Justin Hewitt, who directed Helmington, uh, they're both really good buddies of mine, and uh, they're just like Adam. They're just like Michael uh, Peterson on Ironside, where they just have a wealth of knowledge of this stuff, uh, yeah. of this genre, of this like corner of the industry. So that's cool to have Adam on because I know because I've heard him on a couple podcasts uh, like other ones and he's he knows his stuff. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's definitely. Awesome. Well, let's, I got to uh, say, I, I go back a little bit farther with the Monroe appreciation. I'm, I'm a latest buzz guy. You know, I, uh, Whoa, I've been buzzing that's around. A, that's a callback. <laughs> for, uh, for a long time here. So I, I, need, I needed to put that in. I had to say it. <laughs> that's a, How long ago was that? <laughs> I was in elementary school, so I don't know. <laughs> all right well let, let's go back let's uh, i hope you're okay with this monroe but let's go all the way back to the beginning let's uh let's briefly touch on your experience working as a child actor how did you get your start in this i started with uh my parents just approached me because i have family that's in the industry and they said uh they knew i liked building characters and when i was about three years old i came to my dad and said dad i'd like to be a, a cartoon i wanted to be on bugs bunny i wanted to be a cartoon and he's i'm sorry but you know that's not you can't like be a cartoon so i cried for three days and then <laughs> understand i got the opportunity to, yeah exactly <laughs> then i got the opportunity to do commercials and audition for that, that kind of stuff and then i got to be a part of an alphabet's commercial where they jump me into a screen and i become a, a cartoon that's fighting in my knight in shining armor and the dragon trying to save the girl so I you did become a cartoon that's right wow. that's right so that was that was pretty cool but after that honestly it was just me and my brothers, I grew up with two brothers and we did every sport under the sun. And this was just kind of like another activity. It was just, you know, I started off just wanting to have fun. I always loved performing, loved building, like making characters. And then as I grew up and worked with some incredible actors, and I was very, very, very lucky at a young age to work with uh, the likes of Jack Plant, uh, Greg Kinnear, um, and some other actors I didn't really get to work hand on hand, but I got to see how they worked at a young age in certain films that came to Toronto. All the other sports and activities and passions kind of went away, and this was like my main focus. And so, and then I kind of just dove right in, and then over the years, just kept trying to learn more about the craft and, you know, how to build more cool, interesting characters. Uh, you spent five years playing Eli Goldsworthy on Degrassi, an alternative character who suffered from bipolar. What was it like stepping in that character and knowing that your portrayal 
would serve as a representation for countless youth? It's, you have to be very careful mm-hmm. whenever you're tackling roles like that. Um, anything that has to do with mental illness, anything to do with certain, uh, you know, I was fortunate to play something as well. A character had played, had Tourette's, mm-hmm. um, character was manic depressant and, you have to, it has to come from a genuine place because you can't play the stereotype. That's the, that's the instinct. The instinct right. is to go and play the stereotype of what, you know, you see in the news, you see on other television shows or, you know, movies, but it's so, you know, with Tourette's, everyone thinks you just cuss words randomly, but it's, there's, it's so opposite of that. There's so many different variations and it's very personal. So when uh-huh. you're playing something like Eli, they, read it, they wrote it so well. And that's something that Degrassi did incredibly is that they do their research. They're right. not going to put something on camera um, without truly trying to put their finger on the pulse of the very, very specific experience that that is. And when you're going through rehearsals, when, they're being, when you're being directed, when you're trying to build the character that they've written for you, they're making sure you're doing it authentically. And mm-hmm. they want to make sure that you're doing justice to the people who are watching it so they can feel like, oh, they can feel, um, like you said, like you can relate. And right. that was- that was a big deal. And, it, it, you know, for me, just being that young, trying to portray the character, I've always wanted to play something that was authentic and, and, and enjoy that. But to see the effect it had and to get, you know, the emails and the, the written letters and the, you know, that reaction from people and that interaction where we go to events and they actually talk to people who said, I had this. And not even just my character, but other characters that went through stuff. Because um, that's what made Degrassi great is that the ensemble was so big. So you can, right. you can touch on so many other people. Like kids that go through stuff like that, so it was it was important. Yeah, because your character goes through a lot, and you're the first to discover. I can't remember his name. One of the kids who committed suicide from the hockey team. Your character, yeah, uh, character uh, Campbell. Yes, Campbell. That was right. Um, and then also, you went through um, a miscarriage as well. Your character did. Like, how much do you feel like you put yourself into that? Like, is that that hard to do, especially with topics like that? Um. You tap in everything. I think you mm-hmm. still have to. You still have to wash away the character at some point. Like especially mm-hmm. when you dive into. It's really easier. That's not easier, but it's. You're trying to find. You're trying to relate yourself to that character in some way. So you're going to pull pieces of yourself, unless you're doing a complete transformation where you're playing a historical figure. Um, you're always trying to pull from little parts of yourself. So that's what makes. I find those kind of characters with if they have something like that going on in their life that they're living with you can make it personal because then you can find the root of it and say, okay, well, what would make me tick? Why, what can I add there that I can implement? Um, and, you know, for me on my stuff on Degrassi, a lot of it had to do with Aislinn Paul and myself. So I was very, very lucky when I joined onto Degrassi because I was paired with the most wonderful actor I could be paired with. We just had immediate chemistry. We had worked together prior, but I was very grateful and very lucky to be paired with her. And we built this relationship together and build that character, build those two characters. And so whenever we got to do something like the miscarriage or even for me or her character, her, or my character to be vulnerable like that, that support system between us was there. And so I was very, very lucky to have a partner like that. Um, so, yeah. I mean, you went through a lot being on that show, but I think uh, the presentation of Eli was definitely also such a, you know, iconic aspect of the character how was it being like the tv emo heartthrob of the decade did you did you get any like un, unexpected obstacles while portraying you know that aspect of the character day one trying to drive the hearse number one i had to stretch out try to like because i'm not a big guy so i was like, like stretch out and like touch the touch the pedal but it was uh <laughs> it was such an old hearse that we literally had um one of our shop guys there like working it for me because he had to kind of rev it up <laughs> like it was it was wild i think it's on camera somewhere i think it's someone like behind the scenes but it was that was pretty funny but yeah you just you put a little eyeliner on and you try not to be the stereotype right right you try right. not to there's little things that you see the stereotypes of but you just kind of you just go head in and again you just like you put the you know everyone sees the emo guys oh he's the emo guy and it's like well no like he's yeah he that's his, that's his style that's what he that's his yum you know don't yuck at everybody's yum but like yeah that's his style and then there's all this else about the guy it's not just right he's this brooding guy who's just trying to cause trouble no he's a writer no he wants to direct he has all this other stuff going on with the family and he's very protective he's you know so you you find connections there that were a lot of fun 
Well, I can't tell you like how important it is for people like I know all three of us, we were that character in high school in some way. So it's it's like and especially I think I'm I think I'm actually just like two weeks older than you. So it's almost like I grew up with that character. Uh, so it's yeah. yeah, it's crazy, man. I think it's it's this guy right here. I'm holding up a DVD <laughs> of uh, this is season eleven, part one. Yeah, show, that's that show guy. him the pillow. Show him the pillow, oh, Kyle. This is this has been talked about on the show for a while, but this makes the most sense to finally show it. Of course, people listen to this show, but I also have this awesome Degrassi uh, pillow here. Unfortunately, Monroe, you're not on this pillow, but. Know that the sentiment is there, okay? That's awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah, that was the that was the the first ten seasons there. Yeah. It was. It was, it was pre pre Eli, but you know the the love's still there. The, yeah, the thought was there. Great thing about the show is that like I knew about the show before I was even on it. Everybody knew what the show was. Sure, you know, of course. You, yeah. you heard about it. it's been on for thirty five years now. It's I think it's like forty, but it's iconic and it's iconic for those reasons. What Linda Schuyler started and what she did. She started as a teacher. She, it's, for, it's purposeful. Mm-hmm. Yes, it can be teenage soap opera at times. That's the way it's been labeled. But the, the core root of the issues, it comes from a real place. And it comes from that real, genuine educational background. And totally. so it's like for, for kids to look at that, you just see every walk of life, every you know, style and, and vibe. That's important. And you're seeing that more and more. And I, you know, I, I, it's, I, it's not on right now, but. You know, I, I, I truly believe it'll come back at some point because it has to. Oh, yeah. But it's when it does, it. you're going to hit more stuff, more notes of stuff that's happening in the world right now that are important to talk about. And it mm. gets conversation going. Sorry, I think people forget that, you know, Degrassi was shown in like health class for Canadian kids, you know, like that's a, there's a reason for that. Yeah. What were you going to say, Mitch? I forgot. <laughs> you go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, bad. Sorry. It's all good. Okay. Oh, that I think Canadian moment was brought to you by. Yeah, <laughs> I think we're nearly done on the Degrassi ones, but I have like I have one more I gotta ask. And do you have any like episodes or moments that really stuck out? I know you guys didn't have like the Drake "I'm Upset" music video party, which is really unfortunate, but not yet, at least. Yeah, maybe you can start rapping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> no, definitely not a rapper. I, I, it, honestly, it's you know I, I'll say this, and it's a, it's a very it's an easy answer, but it's the only one I have. I can't pick one because uh-huh. there's too many where they're important to me for different reasons. Some of them are important for me uh, as an actor, just to be able to portray that in, in a specific way. Some of them are important to me because of the emotion felt between myself or between Aislinn and I, that was real. There's some of them were important because they were just fun, you know, crowd surfing on MDMA. Like that was, that was fun. <laughs> and, and some of them was like, like Mitch T. Ness directing, uh, that I've known him my whole career. So that happening there, working with different friends, working, you know, there, you know, you do 40 episodes a season for five seasons. It's going to be, it's going to be hard to pick, but I, I just loved my whole time there. And I, I, I awesome. really, really enjoyed my experience with cast crew and production. So I can't, I couldn't pick just one. Fair enough. All right. So I guess we'll kind of go back to, you know, your career in, in general here. Um, you have a long career in Canadian television, you know, to begin with, I guess, like starting off within television from a very young age on things like the latest buzz, which I brought up earlier and Degrassi, of course. Uh, and those, I mean, those, those things are targeted towards more of like a younger audience. So how has it been different for you, you know, as an adult now working in more adult centric roles like Turbo Kid, Knuckleball, Harpoon, and, you know, genre films like that, uh, which are directly, you know, intended for adult audiences. Um, how has that been kind of that transition and that kind of, um, I guess, maybe period of growth as a, you know, body of work? It's been huge for me as an actor, I'll say that. Um, I never expected myself to do films like the ones I've done over the last five, six years. Um, that's, it's mainly Ironside's fault. And I have <laughs> him all to blame and to thank. Um, you know, we, when we did Turbo Kid, that was in between seasons of Degrassi. And I, I, I never really watched horror thriller films, like some genre films I've seen, but I really didn't grow up with it. I grew up more with, like, you know, Scorsese, um, David Fincher, you know, Derek Seen France. Like, I, I really liked those and also, like, rom-coms. Like, I was, I was a big guy on that, but I never really expected to do any films like this. So when I did, I didn't know what to expect. And then I, my appreciation for it just exploded just to see what actually goes into it. 
And it's fun. Like these characters are very, very complex again, which I love, you know, you look at certain characters that I've been very fortunate to play who are villains, um, who are these seething malicious characters, but they're rooted somewhere like knuckleball's character for me was, yeah, he's the villain, but he's rooted as a very, very damaged boy. And Mm -hmm. what happens when you have a past like that? What happens when you're forced to be a part of a family you didn't choose that. That just happened. And then the ripple effects of that damage. So, you know, there's characters you, you know, you, you hear the, the stories of like Gary Oldman playing um, Charles Manson. He says, no, I won't do it because um, he's just evil. There's no redemption there. So like there's, you know, you got to find the redemption in every character you play that's somewhat evil. But I've been very fortunate with like really, really great scripts and um, just a lot of fun. Honestly, you just dive into those characters and they're hard sometimes to, to wash off at the end of the day, but you know, they're, you know, they're a lot of fun. I'm actually, I'm curious to hear how you approach the role of the kid since it's, it's very, it's like a seemingly straightforward archetype of a protagonist, but by the end of the film, we're left with a very complex and well-developed hero. Did you create a backstory for yourself or did the directors provide that for you? Or how did you do your research into that role? We, we discussed it. So we talked a whole bunch. We did a whole bunch of rehearsals before production. Yeah, so we started, we did a whole bunch of rehearsals during production and we built a little bit of it, but not too much. And we just kind of played him as a kid that's kind of a loner. You know, he doesn't really have a core circle of friends and he's just a kid in the playground. And I resonate with that um, wholeheartedly because I was not that kid who had like a lot. I was very much like playing by myself or I, had, I have a twin brother. So it was mainly me and my brothers hanging out so I was like yeah just hang, he has his stuff and he, he enjoys that and he's very naive and very under um underdeveloped emotionally and so I was 20 24 24 oh yeah I came out when we were 24 not to sound yeah, like a stalker so it's just we're the same age <laughs> that's right that's right so I think it was 22 23 when I filmed it so you're playing him when you you know 14 15 and that kind of youth and playing that 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 young naive impressionable kid and it was just fun. You, you got to play him like very young Luke Skywalker. That's how we always saw him. He was just, he was just, he wanted to be the hero, but he didn't know how. And he, when you get thrust into the ring, say, okay, you're the hero now. How do you react? And sometimes it's hilarious. Yeah. I just, I absolutely love that man. And with that movie, it's one of my favorites. And I truly think that you're the glue. Like there's so many amazing elements to that film, but I think it's your performance that really just like, it's the heartbeat of the movie. Uh, so I really appreciate that. Yeah, I was just kind of wondering to jump off that. Uh, how did you find yourself in that role of the kid? It seems kind of like a dream character to play after spending like maybe a, you know, a decade making films or television shows targeted towards a younger audience. Like every other opportunity, honestly, man. Like I, like it's been. Uh, I've had a couple opportunities where I get to pick and choose where like someone's come with an offer, and that's like when you when someone gets an offer, you just think, yeah, I'll do it. Like it right. have to be like either offensive or just not ready. <laughs> um, for you to say no, because as an actor, like no, you give me, you're giving me a stage to play on. And but this was a very normal audition process. I sent a tape. I did an audition. Uh, they came in from Montreal, the RKSS, and we did a little screen test. And then they decided I was the right person for the role, which I was so thankful for. And I got to do one of every kid's dream, which is to be the hero. Wow. Ever since you ha- were into Real Kid playing the hero, you've had quite a few roles as more of a, a dark villainous character. Uh, are you enjoying jumping into those darker roles? Yeah, I prefer to be the villain, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> like, yeah, you do yeah. like, such a good job of it. Like You can just yeah. flip that switch, which is something really nice about your, a lot of your characters, is there's like an underlying evil within all of them. But it's hard, though. That's, I like it because mm-hmm. it's a challenge. And not that being, also being a hero hero is incredibly hard to be that, to be the charming Superman, that kind of thing. Like to me, I don't see myself that way. So, mm-hmm. but to be a villain, I feel like that's to go back to what we were saying about um, certain mental illnesses and certain things with uh, mental psychosis, you, I can root more to a villain I, and right. that's fun because it gets complex. I can root it to something that can be a little bit different and something that, maybe other people can resonate with. Like I, you look at Loki and Loki is such an interesting villain. Like, and you look at some other villains that are very, like not everything is going to be, um, Oh, what's the, what's the film? Um, uh, De Niro, Cape fear. Not everything's oh, yeah. going to be yeah. like fear. 
like it, that's, that's also very, very different, but I just find villains are like, I always grew up loving the Joker. Like I thought the Joker was so interesting. Like it was always Mark Hamill's Joker for me. Um, yeah, right. Up, but he's interesting. He's different. He's they're They're wild. Cause you can just add so many different layers to them. And so whenever I get the chance to play them, it's, it's a lot of fun. So kind of talking about the, you know, that recent slew of, you know, I guess, uh, genre horror films that you've been working on these past couple of years. Generally speaking, though, how has it been different for you working with in, like, you know, national or international, you know, based projects like something like Degrassi or television focused things that are made for like a wide audience, you know, in juxtaposition with projects like this, which are made independently and are more of like a kind of like the indie circuit or maybe even more like, like we were saying, like genre films kind of more condensed for, you know, smaller um, but very, very loud communities. How, how has that been? It's been, how do I word it? It's very eye-opening to see the passion behind these, these films and how very specific you need to be. Like, they, like I love Fantasia. Fantasia is easily my, nice. favorite, my favorite festival I've ever been to. Like, when we got to Sundance, Sundance was incredible. Like, you know, everyone dreams, to, like, every actor dreams to go to Sundance, TIFF, Con, Tribeca, like, those are the ones. And then you go to Fantasia and you get to watch a film in theaters the way it should be seen. To watch people in theaters scream, laugh, cry, yell at characters, yell at, like, it was just, it was watching Turbo Kid and Fantasia open my eyes to the real heartbeat of what genre films are. And they're just, they're just fun. Like, they're just enjoying themselves watching it. You don't, I feel like sometimes it gets a little too... Maybe the word pretentious is a little too hard, but like microanalyzing every single little thing where like sometimes it can just be fun. Like sometimes rom-coms are just fun to watch. Sometimes blood, guts, and gore can be outlandish and wild and it doesn't have to be this very, very serious thing, especially, you know, right now with everything going on in the world. Like sometimes it's it's fun to watch a film and to laugh and to get little weirding and well, weird, quote unquote, and to weird to me is a a compliment. Like if you're a weirdo, you're, you're in my books. So like to be to get weird with it, it's fucking it's freaking awesome. Great. So I don't know if we can swear in this podcast. I've heard oh, of course. a couple times before, but we can swear. Oh, oh yeah, of course. Totally yeah. fine. Do you got any more? <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say that you uh you mentioned earlier that you didn't really get into horror films at a young age. It just wasn't really your bag. But since you have been working on them, like are there horror films that have stood out to you over the last couple of years that maybe like that you're not in that just have really resonated with you and got you excited about the future of the genre? Even if even I even though I've seen how the sausage is made, they still scare the scare the shit out of me. So like that's the main <laughs> reasons because they still scare me. Like whenever I watch someone, like they jump and I don't like that. I don't truly like that feeling yet. I'm growing to appreciate them a little more. But obviously, like the parasites of the world and you know certain other ones. Like they're I, I honestly don't watch them as much because I I don't like to get my head into that deep into space. And sometimes it's a little harder to like I, I for me whenever I watch when I saw Insidious. For the first time, I literally was like driving home from the theater, just looking behind my rear vision. Like I, I get into that mindset where I don't, I get freaked out. But when I do get to sit down with a good film, I really, really appreciate that. It's usually with Alex Williams, who did Helmington. He's like, you gotta oh, okay. watch this film. You have to watch this film. And I'm like, okay, here we go. That's awesome. All right. I have a fun question for you. So you first hung out with uh, Starship Troopers star Michael Ironside on Turbo Kid. And you've gotten a couple roles working together since then. Uh, so is there like, are you guys friends? Is there a buddy cop action movie in the future with you two? What's going on? <laughs> uh, any opportunity I get the chance to work with Michael, I will leap. Um, <laughs> he is where we've become uh, like family since Turbo Kid. He's very, very close to me. Um, and I consider myself extremely lucky professionally and personally to know him. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a, the best way I can describe him is he's got a silver spoon when it comes to cinematic knowledge, but he's got a blue collar work ethic. Okay. So he, he, he's very sandpapery sometimes in his, in his approach and he's, he's larger than life in his personality and his voice, but he's an absolute, the most loving man I've ever met uh-huh. and just kind and fair and, um, always wants to make sure it's done right. And when he joins onto a project, because, you know, he's Michael Ironside, but when he joins onto a project, it's because he actually believes in it. And he's wa- right. he wants to do everything he can to make it right and to make it good, because he also comes from a writing background. But, no, if, you know, 
I really hope we get to work together soon. I guess he's in Los Angeles. I'm in, I'm in Canada now, but you know, with all the restrictions and whatnot, but uh, I'm sure, I'm sure our paths will cross professionally again, but we, I, I was talking the other night cause we're big Leaf fans. So we were talking about the Leafs game the other night and chatting it up, but I'm sure our paths will cross again on screen. Are you a fan of Starship Troopers? Have you watched any of his older stuff? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Do you like Starship Troopers? Sure. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Like, That's it's, like one of our favorite movies with him. Yeah, we're big fans oh, over here. It's wonderful. No, he's, uh, everything he's done, he's just, he's just so, he's just so good. Like, I remember yeah. growing up, like, he was, like, my actors that I grew up with, and this is not a jab at any other actors that, because you can just have a list, but I was very Robin Williams, uh, Tom Hanks, Denzel Washington, Julia Roberts, um, those kind of actors. I loved, like, Robin Williams is my main. He was always my main guy just because he could do Fisher King and then do Flubber and then Mrs. Doubtfire and yeah. The Descendants. Like, I, I couldn't understand how he could tap into so many different genres all at once. And so that's always been an inspiration for me whenever I want to do a role. If, if you know, if, if we're reading a script or anything like that, that has that complexity. So that will also, you know, reference back to villains where they can be funny right. and you can laugh through your fear. And, and that's where he's, Ron Williams just had that an amazing gift. And so I don't, I don't think I'll ever get to that status because he's just iconic. And I think there's something in that he has that is incredible, but I will enjoy the journey trying to get there. You know, that was the, that was the one celebrity death that probably hit me the hardest as well. Like that. He's such an amazing performer and always has been. It was like a household name in my place. Um, so that's really interesting to hear. But also like when we had, uh, initially had Michael Peterson on, he was talking about how Ironside was the one who suggested you like, that's crazy, man. That like uh, a guy like Michael Ironside who has like so many credits behind under his belt and is such a legendary actor being like, hey, have you heard about this kid from Toronto? Like, that's that's so cool, man. It was huge. You know, he's, yeah. and that was the one thing that he knew. And that's just what I mean about his his knowledge of film, but also his ability as an actor to, he loves challenging people. He really does. So he knew I'd never done films like that before. So when he read the script, he goes, he goes, see if he can do it. And he, <laughs> he believed I could. And so I was, that's what I mean. Like, I have him to blame and to thank for all these great experiences over the last five years. He, th- he threw me into the fire and knuckleball was the first one because turbo kid was um, still a very naive kid. And it was still something relatively what I was doing in that genre, but to jump into that genre, you have, you have to challenge yourself in so many different ways. And so the fact that he had confidence in me and the fact that Peterson had confidence in me to tackle that, I'll always be grateful for that. That's awesome, man. Well, yeah, we won't keep you too much longer. We've really, really appreciated all the time you've given us today, but uh, we've been keeping a close eye on the potential for a Turbo Kid sequel, a movie that seems built to create a franchise. Uh, Can you offer any insight into the pre-production process for this? Because I know it's out there, but uh, I don't really know where it's at. The only thing I'll say is that when I do get the chance to work with the RKSS again, I'll be jumping to do it. Awesome. (laughs) Can't say more than that, but... Yeah, awesome, awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for being here, man. This was seriously amazing for us, and um, I, I know I can speak for all of us that we're huge fans, and can't wait to see what you're up to next. But uh, do you have anything that you could plug today? Is there any social medias that you're on that people can follow you on, or do you kind of stay right. away from that stuff? <laughs> I stay away from social media, I truly do. Um, I'm only Actually, it's funny, I'm only on social media. I'm on Twitter, so I'm on... Uh, my handle is... Uh, it's the underscore Monroe. Cause I, I got onto it when I was on Degrassi because they're like, you need to get Twitter. I'm like, okay. And then I got onto Twitter and I was like, okay, but I don't have Instagram or anything like that. I try to stay away from social media, but um, go on there. And I, I got a couple of things that'll be coming out uh, in the re- in, in the near future. Um, and they're exciting. I can't talk about them, but they're exciting. So when, when Perfect. they come out, um, I'll, I'll, I'll put them out on Twitter and or they'll be released or whatever it is. But, um, but boys, thank you so much for having me. You know, you guys are doing such a great job and just listening to some of the previous podcasts and you guys just have such a wealth of knowledge and you guys are just a, a really fun listen. So keep up the thank great Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, man. Yeah, thank thank you. you. All right. We'll talk soon, man. And we'll see you guys next time on the terror table. Take care.